everybody. If I don't know you, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you would flip open to Ephesians 3 with me, that would be great. We love the Bible at Salt City. We think it's true. We think it's the authority. And so when we teach, we just try and teach what it says. So I'd love it if you would look at it with me as we go. Um, I, I told you earlier in this series through the book of Ephesians that this book breaks down into essentially two categories. So the first category has been what we've been in, which is where Paul is unpacking the miraculous goodness of the grace of Jesus Christ. The the best news ever told in the history of the world, and he's using everything that he knows, how all of his language to unpack for you, how incredible Jesus Christ is and how good it is to know him. It's been like a fire hose where he's just dumping concept after concept after concept of God's grace on us. And we've been talking about how the application to that is to worship, to just see that Jesus is amazing and to be inspired by him and to enjoy him. So that's the section that we've been in. But then the second section starts in chapter four. So we're going to bridge that gap a little bit this morning where Paul starts to say, if these things are true, what does it mean for your life? And I just want to acknowledge on the front end that we tend to think that those two things are different things. That the good news about Jesus Christ is different from the way that we live as Christians. That grace and good works are somehow opposed to each other. But in Ephesians and all throughout the Bible, they're they're one and the same. They're knit together that when you get the goodness of Jesus Christ, you can't help but be transformed. That's what he does. And so belief is not just an abstract series of, of intellectual propositions, but belief is a way of life. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. I want, to, I want to talk about what it means to encounter the goodness of Jesus. And we're going to focus in still on that, that first half on chapter 3. But then we'll eventually bridge that gap over into chapter 4 of if those ideas, we're going to talk about the power of ideas this morning and what ideas do in your life. And if those ideas of who Jesus is and, and what that means for your life were to land what it would do to you practically. All right, so... I want to start out by making one observation from chapter 3 that at first I think seems pretty mundane, pretty average. But if, we're to, if we understand the implications of it rightly, I think it will get to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And, and I think getting this idea is one of the markers of genuine Christianity when you compare it to its fake counterpart, sort of religiosity and behavior modification. All right, so let's, let's look at this. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So I'm going to keep reading, but I just want to stop there for a second. So Paul here is praying for the Ephesians. That's how he wraps up this epic description of the gospel is by trying to pray what he's just said into the lives and and bones of the Ephesians, into their souls, right? And he's falling on his face before God. He bows his knees before the Father. He's contending with them and for them in prayer. I'm not going to unpack this, but I just want to ask the side note. Do you pray like this? Like, like, do you get on your knees in desperation before God and contend with him for the souls of other people and for your soul? Because Paul, as he writes this, yes, he's, he's, he's praying for his friends, 
But he's also writing it down, which shows that he's putting thought into it. He knows the Ephesians are going to read from it and they're going to learn from him how to pray and who God is. So it's very intentional what he's doing and he, he, he wants us to model him in that. And so as we read this prayer in a second, I mean, do you, does your prayers sound like that? And he's, he's on his knees just as a, a way of physically demonstrating to God what either is true in, her heart, in his heart or what he wants to be true in his heart. That, that Jesus is Lord, right? Uh, if some of you are new to church, the whole raising our hands thing in worship, or periodically we'll like clap or kind of shout about the resurrection, that might be weird to you. That was for me when I was a Christian. All that is is using our bodies to try to communicate a truth about the world. And the same thing can be done in prayer as you bow before God in prayer. So, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, I love that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Power by the spirit or through the spirit inside of your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's been my prayer this week leading up to this, is that all of us, including myself, would walk out filled with the fullness of of God. So there's so much goodness in there that, oh man, there's so many different ways we could go with it. But I want to actually just try and simplify it down to the essence of what Paul is praying. So very simply, what is it that Paul is asking God to do? So look back at verse 16. Paul is asking that God would strengthen the Ephesians and in this prayer would apply to us. And there's lots of modifiers after strengthen on how God would do that. But the primary prayer is that God would strengthen the Ephesians. So the question is, what does Paul want God to strengthen the Ephesians for? Look at 17 and 19. Kind of read that over again with me so you can get a feel of what he's praying for. You can just kind of read that on your own. But the way I would would summarize it is that Paul is praying that the Ephesians would know the love of God. So very simplified, The prayer is that by the power of God, the church would experience the love of God. And so I want to spend most of the rest of our time unpacking that idea that is grounded in this prayer. Now, I said earlier that there'd be an observation that I wanted to make that seems pretty mundane, pretty simple at first, that I think can change everything for our understanding of Christianity. Are you ready for it? Here's the observation. Paul here is praying for things for these Christians that are already true of all Christians. He's praying for things that have already happened in their life. First example, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in their hearts. That's what Christians are, people who are united with Christ. Jesus is living in them. Verse 19, that they would know the love of Christ. If anything, isn't that what a Christian is? Somebody who says, Jesus loves me. And in response to that, again, verse 19, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. That is true for every person who has genuinely believed 
in Jesus. So the question is, why is Paul praying for things that he clearly knows have already happened in the lives of the believers? And here's what I think the answer is, is because he wants them to experience and enjoy what they theoretically believe to be true. That just because something is true or you theoretically believe that it's true doesn't mean that you know how to experience it and let it transform your life. Look back at verse 19. It says that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Think about that sentence. You may know something that surpasses knowledge. That doesn't make any sense at first glance. So what is he saying? Well, when we think about knowing something, we tend to think Knowledge, intellect, prefrontal cortex, reason. And so we tend to think about belief as a theological abstraction. So, so what it means to believe in God or to believe in something in your life is that you jump through some mental hoops. You say, Jesus is Lord, or Jesus loves me, or Jesus can save me, or something like that. And you, you have a theoretical assent to some some ideas through some truths. But when the Bible talks about knowing something, it talks about it relationally. So when it says knowing, it means something like the way that you know your spouse or the way that a mother knows her child. Yes, it involves information, but it involves far more than that. It's, it's a knowing in the very soul, the very core of who you are that affects all of, you are, all of who you are, not just your intellect. And so here Paul is praying that we would know God like that. That, that we would oh, experience his love in, in the, the centerpiece of who we are. And that that love would begin to transform our lives as we systematically apply it to our lives. That the love of Christ would start to melt your fears and your insecurities and your false hopes and your need for control. That it would be put on daily and then activated in your life through experience of Jesus. Christianity in its nature is experiential religion. That's what it is at its heart. Christianity is not essentially morality. Now, please hear me on this before we do weird things with that. Christianity does involve your morality. <laughs> okay? it, it does tell you how to live, but I'm saying that's not the heart of what it is. The first thing that comes to my mind with this is 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's what Paul says about the resurrection, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he, in, in a, another way to say that is, if Jesus is not still alive today, offering you relationship with him, if that didn't happen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So I've said this before from stage, if you could systematically prove to me that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, I'm walking off the stage, I'm done preaching, let's shut the whole thing down, it's pointless. What we're doing here is meaningless. What Paul goes on to say is that if in Christ we have hope for this life only. Translation, if all Jesus does is sort of give us some rules to live by in this life, then... 
we are to be pitied above all people. So I've heard this argument before, right, that I, I, I have some doubts about Christianity. I'm not sure if it's true, but even if it isn't true, the fact that I'm sort of following Christianity makes my life better. And so it's kind of fine either way. Actually, what Paul is saying is the exact opposite, <laughs> that you are to be pitied among all people. Why? Because there's something far more in what we're talking about with following Jesus than just following some rules or changing some behavior. It's experiencing the living Son of God, having a knowing relationship with Him where His love is transforming your life. And, and when you talk to Him, He talks back to you. I, like, I believe in Christianity because of some rational arguments. I believe that Jesus really did historically rise from the dead and that that's historically verifiable. But I primarily believe in Christianity because I know Jesus. I, you, you couldn't convince me that my wife doesn't exist, no matter how good your argument is, because I talked to her this morning before I left home. Like, she's there. I talked to Jesus this morning before I left my house. I prayed to him. Then he talked back to me through his word. I know him. That's how I know. Do you know Jesus? No, really, do you, do you know him? Do you know how to experience life with him? Is it just abstract and kind of intellectual? Is it a prayer that you prayed at some point? Or have you, are you walking with him? Experiencing him alive, the resurrected king of the universe in you by his spirit? I had the chance to go on um, like a little spiritual disciplines retreat a couple weeks ago. It's something that I try to make a practice in my life to every fall just get away and spend time with God. Time just exclusively devoted to him, get into some silence and solitude, that type of thing. I usually go somewhere just out of the city and try to go somewhere like along the river. So this time I went to Winona. It's this pretty town kind of along the river. There's some bluffs to hike and stuff like that. And so I usually just spend time in nature talking to God. Uh, and it was awesome. The, the problem was, as I'm driving down, the weather app is saying that it's a 100% chance of rain literally the entire time that I'm there. <laughs> and so I get there, I'm like, I drove here to like hike on some bluffs and talk to Jesus, and now it's pouring down rain. And so I, like, I ended up inside the majority of the time. But then it was like 10 o'clock at night, and I heard the rain stop. Like I could hear it on the roof. And I heard it stop raining. I'm like, this is my chance. I'm going to get outside, dang it. And so I like, I was kind of winding down. I'm like, nope, I throw my stuff on. I get outside and I walk down about 10 minutes away to the waterfront. I was just going to walk along the river and pray. And I mean, you already know where this is going, right? Like the second I get to the waterfront, what happens? It's, it starts drizzling, right? It starts, starts to rain a little bit. I'm like, ah, it's fine. No big deal. So I wait a couple more minutes and then all of a sudden it's like, it's now raining. It's raining on me. And so I'm, I'm mad and I'm like, dang it, like I just want to be outside. I'm kind of pouting. And, uh, it, you know, so I'm like thinking about heading back, whatever. And while I'm in my like processing phase, it now goes from rain to like sideways blowing, storming on me. And I am like immediately completely soaked. And so I'm mad and about to leave. And then I feel like, okay, and look, this isn't, this isn't Bible. This is just Jordan. All right. I, 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 I feel like, and God does this to me sometimes, I feel like when I'm in times of prayer with him, I feel like there's a check in my spirit where he's just like, don't leave. Don't leave my presence. Just stay here with me. And so it is just like sideways blowing rain at me. And I just sat on a park bench by the water and prayed. 
And I'm just getting like drenched, right? And at first I'm hating it. And like this girl drove by and was like really creepy and there was nothing I could do to explain myself. So I just kind of like tried to smile and look happy and I just waved, you know? And she drives by. But over time as I'm praying, I feel like I became aware of God's presence. And as ridiculous as it sounds, in the pouring rain, I feel like God met with me. And I... I'm like watching the rain hit the water and thinking about how God like waters his entire planet and takes care of like every plant on planet earth and how amazing that is. And, and I'm like enjoying his creation and I start thinking about all the good things God has done in my life. And then this song, <laughs> this cheesy song from like the early 2000s pops in my head by Todd Agnew called Grace Like Rain. And uh, so I'm thinking about Grace Like Rain and it's like, you know, I just feel like, you know, as I'm like soaking wet, it's like that's what the grace of God is like in my life. And I start thinking about how God has, has provided for me and protected me and how I'm, I'm blessed more than I can even imagine and how I'm just like dripping with the grace of God. And by the time I'm walking back home, man, my entire experience had changed. I'm like now Gene Kelly and like dancing, singing in the rain, you know, like that's how I'm feeling. And, and so, I, I, okay, so I mean that practically as what it looks like for me to experience God in my life, but I also mean it as a metaphor that no matter what's going on in your life, your experience of that thing can be radically transformed by your awareness of the presence of God and your enjoyment of his love. That the exact same thing can be happening and you can go from hating your life and, and things not going well and having this downer perspective to enjoying the love of Jesus Christ. Now, in my life, it doesn't always look that sort of either weird or kind of fun and enjoyable. Often what it looks like is when I have sin in my life that is I don't want to own up to or is unconfessed for a while or I have insecurities or fears, I feel like the Spirit of God comes in and starts talking to me about those things and his voice is almost undeniable. And he's telling me, you got to confess that or hey, you got to work through this insecurity. You got to let people in on that. And I just, everything in me doesn't want to and everything in me is kicking and screaming against it. And here's what I feel like God says is, trust me, I love you. When I'm talking to you about these things, I want what's good for you not what's bad. And every time that I've trusted him, and I haven't always, but every time that I've trusted him, I have discovered a deeper level of the goodness of God through my brokenness. When I was afraid of everything going wrong in my life, I found more riches of his love. Now, if you hear me talk about that, and you're not experiencing God, or you don't know how to experience God like that, the point is not to sort of feel guilty or bad about that and just conclude that that can't be the case for you. It's an invitation into more of the reality of who God is. Last week, we had a guest speaker here named Jeff, and he talked about um, his love for Africa and his friends in Zambia. And, and his passion was just so clear as he was talking about it. Now, imagine that I went up to Jeff afterwards and I said, you know what, Jeff, I got to confess something to you. I'm not as passionate about Zambia as you are. Is, is Jeff going to look at me and say, how dare you? You should feel guilt and shame and kind of like work that up. You should love these people the way that I do. No. What's he going to say? He's going to invite me along. He's going to say, you want to come with? If you come experience this with me, you'll love Zambia the way that I do. 
And that's what I'm trying to say is not guilt and shame over what you're not experiencing with God, but hey, it's an invitation you want to come with into the depths of who God is and experiential knowledge of his love because there's nothing keeping you from knowing him and enjoying him in your life. You really are invited into that by the grace of God and what Ephesians 3 says, the power of the spirit who lives inside of you and wakes you up to the reality of who God is and his love and applies it uniquely and specifically and individually to you in your life so you can walk through this life knowing and experiencing him. You could either get discouraged and think that that type of relationship is not for you. You could get proud and dismiss it as hyper-emotionalism. You're too rational, you're too realistic for something like that. Or you could catch a vision and get creative in how you pursue that knowing relationship with God. And I just want to ask you to pursue that vision. Now, I can't unpack the fullness. Some of you are like, how? Like, tell me what to do. How do I do this? Well, it's not quite that simple. (laughs) It's a lifetime spent experimenting, trying to discover the love of God in your life and understand all of its implications. Um, it's, It's more than I can unpack in one sermon. But a little side note is, if you're in a connection group, you should be hearing soon from your leaders about a formation series that we'll be doing specifically for people in connection groups in Salt City called Encountering God, where through the month of January, we'll be unpacking for you what would it look like to pursue relationship with God intentionally. But for now, I just want to talk about having that vision in your life. Now, with that, I want to ask the question, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to experience the love of God? For so many of us, including myself, this is sort of a fleeting concept. It's something we get little tastes of periodically, but it's not something we know how to live consistently in. Or even in this text, if you look back at verse 16, Paul is calling on the riches of the glory of God, which we've talked about the riches of the glory of God in past. In the past, the riches of God are not just a lot of something, it's all of something. So Paul is calling on the infinite glory of God to try to come to bear in your life just so that you could believe that God loves you and applies it. So why does Paul have to call on the infinite glory of God to make this happen? Why is it so hard for us to experience? Well, I think it's because there are enemies of your soul that are all trying to convince you that this truth is not real. The primary enemy of your soul is Satan himself. I know in a Western naturalistic um, context, that's really hard for us to believe, but cultures all throughout history have believed in this reality, and the Bible attests to that reality that there is a spiritual enemy of your soul, and he is feeding you ideas or lies that play into your sinful nature and echo around in our world that confirms those things in you. And that lie that he is feeding you is directly contrary to what Paul is praying you would believe by the power of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 3. John Mark Homer points out in his recent book that when Satan came to try to kill Adam and Eve in the garden, when he came to fight with Jesus in the desert, he didn't come with a sword. He didn't attack their bodies. He came with an idea, a lie. 
He spun the truth of God for a lie, and he's been spinning that truth ever since. And this is what he was telling Eve and what he was trying to tell Jesus and what he's telling you every single day is that God doesn't really love you, specifically that he's holding out on you. Yeah, God is fine, but maybe there's more than that. And that you can find somewhere else what you can't find in him. Verse 17 talks about how we need to be rooted and grounded in the love of God. It's the imagery of the tree roots going deep. Why? Because on the surface, the tree is going to get blown around and it needs something to hold it firm in God's love. That blowing around of the tree is the lies that are ever present and fed to you in this world that will try to shake you either through suffering or through sin or through things you see in this culture that will try and attract you away from the love of God and you need roots grounded in who he is. And here's how the lie of the lack of love of God manifests itself in your life that you need something else. That yeah, God says you can have relationships in the church, but what he said about the community of the church probably isn't true and you need to look for it somewhere else. He'll tell you that Jesus' teachings on money and power and giving away your life and self-control and your sexuality can't really be what's good for you. It's not really out of a heart of love in God's heart, but he's holding out on you. He'll try to tell you that you need to be afraid or that you need to be in control of your own life because no one else will protect you. Every day, Satan's sin in the world come with ideas And those ideas are not just ideas. They can change your entire experience of the world. Truth and lies matter practically. So to illustrate this, I actually was reminded of um, a podcast. I think it was a This American Life podcast that I listened to a while back. Maybe some of you heard it. Uh, Maybe you haven't. But it was talking about, uh, in 2010, this thing that happened at a beach in Southern California. So there was this tourist attraction of a beach in Southern California, and then all of a sudden, some seals just invaded it and decided to live there. And so for a while, the seals and the people were commingling, and people were even trying to take selfies with the seals, which sounds, you know, kind of fun. Um, and they're, eventually, they started trying to pet the seals, right? So then this whole thing happened where the seals would flush into the water. I know too much about seal terminology from this podcast flushing is the official term for when they get a little scared and they run off the beach into the water. And there was some concern that this was hurting the seals. So, of course, an advocacy group was formed, a seal advocacy group. And so they, they formed their group and they got laminated name tags so that they would look official. And they wore their name tags and they brought out a table and they set it up on the beach with like pamphlets and things like that, trying to educate people about the seals, and they got their megaphones, and they yelled at people who got too close to the seals. And so this went on for a while, and then there were some locals that got frustrated by these people, and so they formed their own advocacy group. And they were now the shared-use advocates. And so they came with their laminated name tags and their pamphlets and their signs and their tables. So literally, if you tried to go to this beach, you would have to walk through a tunnel of people yelling at you and each other in megaphones. And and this went on for years, so much so that they're now insulting each other by name. And, And the police are starting to get called. So at the height of the conflict, three years later in 2013, the local police department got 227 calls in a year just out to this beach. 
because of this conflict. They're starting to videotape each other and, and trying to submit it to the police. Eventually, this leads to death threats and people getting sent to federal prison. So what, what happened? Like I, my, my mind is just blown by this. What happened? Some ideas were implanted in their minds. The first for both of them that this was the hill to die on. They got that implanted in their mind. And then the idea that these other people were evil and what was wrong with the world got implanted in their mind. And here's what happens with ideas, in particular false ideas, but actually both false and true ideas. They're not static. They grow. It's like an idea seeps into your brain. It, it, um, it, it, it stays there and it, and it grows with time and becomes stronger as it steeps. Ideas are also not theoretical, they become practical. These abstract concepts in their brain became jail time because it affected the way that they live. And by the way, is that not a perfect illustration of what our culture is doing right now? Forming sides, yelling at each other, and hoping that they'll be able to con uh, convert the other one through those yelling ideas, but they're actually just getting more entrenched in their ideas. And so when those roots, or when those lies root themselves in your mind, when they steep in your mind, they begin to destroy things. So for some of you, you've had the idea in your mind that people have hurt you so they can't be trusted. And so you become guarded, you become defensive. Or you've had the idea implanted in your mind that you have to perform to be loved. And so you've become an obsessive, competitive, domineering person. Or you've had the idea that your worth is in your family or your career, and so you're anxious, insecure, afraid, disappointed. Or you've had the idea come into your mind that God doesn't love you because of your sin or because of the circumstances in your life, that those are evidence of the lack of love of God, and so you've become hopeless. And so here's what you need. You need, verse 16, you need to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your innermost being. It takes supernatural power to believe in the love of God in a way that it will transform your life. To become so rooted in his love that you are secure regardless of what happens in your life. And so I just want to finish by asking the question, what happens if you do that? If you, by the power of God, can become rooted in the love of God, what will happen? Well, that love will expand throughout your soul and throughout your life and expand out into the church and eventually into the world. God's love will expand through you into the world. Look at chapter 4. I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to, you, to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That text feels like a deep breath to me. How good would that be if you could live like that? 
How good would that be if our church could be like that? How good would that be if our world could be like that? This is a vision for how God will change the world. Is that his love would enter your life and would infuse itself into all of your being and then would spread out into the church and then into the world. The end of chapter three was about the love of God in the individual. Then in chapter four, verses two through five is a description of what happens to the church when it really believes and lives in the love of God. If you look at that with me, look at verses two through five. I just want to make a few observations as you kind of read that. What happens when God's love lands in the church? The church becomes humble and gentle, which is this beautiful contrast to an angry culture. The church bears with one another in love. Instead of heaping your burdens on someone else, you pick up their burdens off of them and you carry, for, carry them for them in love. And the church becomes united, unified. Instead of competing with and canceling each other, the church is this community of unified, abundant love. Because we have been loved by God, we don't need to use and abuse other people, but we can serve them because we have everything that we need in him. And so we can turn around and serve on the grounding of his love. If you're new here, I want to talk to you about our church. And actually, if you're not, if you're not new here, I want you to hear this too. We do not cancel or polarize people here. That's not what we do. We don't show favoritism. We don't let politics or ideology or theology or race or money divide us. A lot of those things are important things, but they're not the main thing here. We're not harsh. We're not critical. We assume the best, not the worst. And anybody who wants to can come in. You're welcome here. And so for you, if you have tension in your relationships, in any relationships, relationships with people in this church, with your family, with your friends, just stop trying to be right. You don't have to justify yourself. You're already justified in Christ. So being right doesn't have to be the goal anymore. You can stop trying to win arguments and you can win people. Now, do we live that out perfectly? No. No. All those things that I just said is true, is true of us is also not true of us in some ways. We are not perfect. We're composed of sinners and if you hang around here long enough, you will be hurt by the church. You will be sinned against. Of course you will. That's true of any organization, any group of people, but the temptation can be to leave the church because the church is flawed and to follow some other ideology to improve your life as if that will work. But that would be like if you were trying to cut down a tree so you're trying to cut down like a giant old oak tree or something like that, and you've got a chainsaw that's a little bit dull. And so it's not working perfectly. And so your solution to that problem is to throw away the chainsaw and go grab a butter knife and try to cut down the tree. That's not an effective solution. Like, let's just maybe sharpen the chainsaw, but let's not throw out the chainsaw. This is what I'm saying. The church is the chainsaw for change in the world. Yeah, it's not perfect, but don't throw it out for a butter knife. There's no other ideology that can even come close to comparing with what the church can do to create this beautiful reality described in chapter four in the world. Our world is full of utopian visions. 
descriptions of what the world would be like if we could just make it good. And this idea that the world is, is beautiful and good and that we should pursue the good. And conservatives and progressives share that same concept, that the world is good and it should be better than what it is right now. They just have a different definition of the good and a different methodology for that good, but they're all after the same thing. Utopia, people living in a good world. The problem is, is that no movement, no idea has the power to actually create that world. And so we just talk about that world and try to create that world and blame the fact that that world doesn't exist on someone else. But the problem is there's no power except for the church empowered by Jesus Christ through his spirit. It's the church that has the blueprint and the power to create a people and eventually a world like the one described in chapter four of love and unity and peace and joy. The blueprint is the life and teaching of Jesus. The power is the love of God in us by his spirit. Our secular culture is incredibly and beautifully committed to human rights. It's beautiful, but there's no foundation for it in the secular perspective. They're inevitably Christian ideals. And so if, if you're not a Christian yet, or if you're, you're maybe a, a skeptic or a critic, um, Christianity provides for you the means to what you're looking for in the world. This beautiful world of unity and love, Christianity is the way that we get there. Christianity is what the world is calling for without knowing it. It's the true utopian vision of the world. It's the news of how God will make the world good through the endless expansion of his love. And it begins in this life through his church and then culminates in the next life in the kingdom of God and in heaven. And maybe the best part about that news is by the love of God, you can become good. That's the adventure that Jesus is inviting you in on for you to become a good human being, not a perfect human being, but a good human being by his power. That as you experience his love, it transforms you into a person of love. As you experience his peace, it transforms you into a person of peace. And you create unity, not conflict in the world. That was out of nowhere. Uh, if that seems idealistic, if that seems like too much of a dream, I want to end on uh, flipping back to chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are able to do more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. You have the power to do in us and in the world what seems impossible and unimaginable to us. And so God, we pray that you would do it. And God, I pray alongside of Paul for our church that our church would know and experience and enjoy the love of Jesus Christ. For people in our community who are depressed, maybe even suicidal, that they would know right now that you are speaking to them, that they, are, that they have worth, they have significance, they have value in you, they are created in your image and that you love them and you want relationship with them. Speak it to them right now in power, Holy Spirit. For people caught in sin, that they would know that you have not abandoned them, but that you are drawn to them, not away from them because of their brokenness. For people suffering and in pain who don't understand the brokenness of this world and can't solve the, the confusing reality of suffering, 
Speak to them now, Jesus. Help them to see that this is not the end, that you are not done and that you are good. You always have been and you always will be. For those of us that are insecure and afraid and nervous, Lord, empower us. Let us believe the love of God exercised by your spirit. That You've not given us a spirit of weakness and fear and timidity. You've given us a spirit of power in you. Let us believe, Holy Spirit, that you're alive and well and that you're in us and transforming us for those that are giving up, tempted to walk away from the faith because of things going on in culture, things going on in themselves, people that feel like they can't change, that they're too far gone. Help them to believe that this word is for them. Help them to experience and to know your love and experience for the rest of their life until they see you face to face. Hold on to us, Jesus, until we can meet with you finally and forever. Hold on to us until that day. Don't let us go. In Jesus' name, amen.